Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent politics and media podcast, coming to you solely from New Zealand this evening. I'm joined by Ross and Mikey to talk about the change in lockdown levels coming out of Level Four in Auckland, where we all reside. Uh, it's been a bit of a, a roller coaster as we we're talking about before we began the recording. Welcome to the cast, folks. Yora, it's lovely to be back, and welcome to day 420,690 of lockdown or whatever it feels like. Yeah. I can think only in memes now. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity to add to the multitude of takes on the lockdown level change. Because <laughs> we haven't had enough of them. You know uh, what, though? Um, a lot of those are just takes. But what we're going to have here um, on this podcast is some hard-hitting critique and analysis that you won't get anywhere else. So I'm in the wrong podcast. <laughs> retweet, share, and get this out there because this is where it's really happening, um, and we're bringing it straight to you, uh, uncensored, um, uncancelable, uh, never platformed, raw you can't, opinions. Can't deplatform us if we never had a platform. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to being deplatformed so I can get on that sweet, sweet can- cancellation <laughs> grifter money. Here's starting up my GoFundMe as we speak. I don't know. I think you just have to be an asshole if you're going to be pulling that shit, though. And I, oh, I'm I not sure. <laughs> Glad Sweden is close enough. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so we wanted to talk about um, the, the lockdown um, change that's just occurred or is occurring in about four hours from now, maybe a little longer. Um, Auckland has been in the New Zealand version of a, of a level four lockdown, which is our highest level of restrictions on, on the populace. The rest of the country has been at level two, which is quite a lot lighter. Um, Ross, do you want to go through what level four has includes and has meant um, just in general? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so level four for me personally um, is, they say we have some of the, the, the toughest restrictions on lockdowns in the world. When I talk to friends of mine abroad, they're astonished at how restricted we are, especially at level four. Um, personally, I work remotely um, most of the time. I haven't been back to my office in a while and I'm a bit concerned about the coffee cup that I left on my desk last time I was there. Um, but I've had to do my job with childcare. I've had to look after my, my kid who's not been able to go to daycare. Um, we have gone out once a week for groceries. Everything else has been shut. Um, any sort of online store that you look at that you know has its list of essentials, which can be a bit of a wobbly list at times. As a family, we have been able to make it work from home, but we have been spread very, very thin doing that. And a lot of the young people that I work with are essential workers. They're still going to work. They're still earning minimum wage for big companies who are absolutely creaming it off this, uh, off this lockdown and are really feeling the stress from that. It's been a rough time for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, I'm in a similar position in that I work from home, but I, I don't have a kid. And whenever I'm on a Zoom call and, uh, you know, with my coworkers and they do have kids, I'm just like, wow, like just so difficult to juggle those things um, mm. because everyone's pulled into meetings all the time. You know, how have you been finding it, Mikey? Um, it's, it's been tricky. Like I, I have two different roles. So one of them um, is a, is a job I can do from home. That's, I'm a nurse educator for school nurses, um, which is tricky in and of itself because I'm helping to coordinate uh, a workforce uh, which normally work in schools. Schools are closed at the moment, so they're having to support students virtually the same way I am. Um, and I'm connecting up with them through Zooms, and they all have kids, and their kids are all coming into each of the, <laughs> each of the meetings. Um, my work from home life is real complicated because my brain definitely doesn't work if I'm the only person in the room and having to go through a task list. I am so bad at staying on task in that context. Uh, I'm a clinician through and through, which means I like to just work on whatever is in front of me at the time, <laughs> um, which is also the tricky part about my clinical work at the moment, um, working in a youth health clinic 
we're minimizing the amount of face-to-face that we're doing and doing as much as we can through Zoom or phone calls, um, which, yeah, that, that lear- learning how to do a mental health assessment over the phone ha- is wild and it's an exhausting thing to do. Mm. Um, and being able to kind of like um, determine what does need to be seen face-to-face, um, coping with that kind of additional stress of seeing someone face-to-face in close contact in the middle of a outbreak is a bit of a stress as well. Um, so that's kind of how it's been going. I don't have kids. I just got cats. Is is um, <laughs> yep. I can't figure out the mirror. You got it. You got it. Oh, yeah, there we go. There's a cat. Uh, yeah. They're uh, they're they're a bit less intrusive. One of the so I I work um, with counselling clients. So I'd say it during the pandemic, about about ten hours a week are spent in direct one on one contact with counselling clients, and that's that's a bit of a sacred space, you know, like that's a time where ideally you'd want to be uh, face-to-face, um, able to give them your full attention. Trying to do that when there's a, a non-zero chance of an excitable four-year-old barging in to show you the Lego whatever that he has built for you um, makes it really, really difficult. And um, and that's been chronic. And I think one of the things that maybe there's there's so many aspects of this in terms of mental health and well-being but just personally it's been sad seeing the effects it's had on on little kids you know like he if we were out for a walk together like he will leap into a hedge if someone walks past because he's got it into his head that we stay in a bubble um he gets quite anxious if one of us goes to the store you know in case in case we come back and we're sitting, we've really tried not to make a big deal out of this, but he's just, he's just picked it up. Um, he can see that we're all anxious. So he is as well. He's not sleeping very well and he's lonely, you know, he's, he's too young to, to chat to friends on, on, on the internet <laughs> and get back to me in a couple of years when that's all he's doing. But right now he's too young for it. And as everyone so knows, chatting to friends via internet is a perfect uh, social experience uh, that completely replaces uh, face-to-face <laughs> contact. <laughs> as soon as he gets into Fortnite, it's all over. But, um, you know, he's he's really found the lack of uh, sort of peer support as much as mm. peers can support each other at preschool, like really tough. Um, and that's sort of taken its toll on all of us, I think. It's, and because you have to keep it together for him. You know, you can't, yeah. he can't see how hard this is for the adults in his life. Mm. Yeah, even even my two year old nephew um, has been expressing some of that kind of behavior. Like he saw one of the family members about to exit the house without a mask on, and he uh, he almost started crying in fear that they were going to, you know, be at risk of getting COVID for not having the mask. And that's at two years old. Mm. Um, what um, I'm not. Have you noticed any? difference in how the people are that you're supporting in your counseling how they're doing this time around um yeah there's i think that sort of grinding chronic anxiety is really starting to to bite for a lot of people and um you know because i see clients i see clients across the country Mm. so whilst some of them are not going to have been at level four for an extended period of time. There's a lot of them that, that are not. But I think that certainly among young people, and I'm not sure what it's like for you, like that just uncertainty. And I think that realization that this is here for a long time, not just a bad time, is mm-hmm. really starting to, to impact. There's a sense of, I get this sense of hopelessness from some people. Like there's just what is the point of, if this is just how life is now, you work your minimum wage job, it's really shit. You go into lockdown. Uh, you're under this constant threat of this virus. Um, it doesn't leave a lot of space for feelings of positivity, look into the future. And it's yeah. it's hard to help them to see that. And I, I, yeah, I would hate to be a, a young person in this pandemic. It's hard enough as an, as an ancient adult. <laughs> I think that's something <laughs> we were talking about before, the cast as well, right? That there are different pandemics going on um, as mm. far as people's response and experience of them go. Um, those of us who are who are lucky, lucky enough to be working from home and, and you know trapped in our houses, um, and you know if you have 
your own home uh, or if you have multiple homes um, or if you're, you're well off, it, it makes it that much easier on, on several levels. And then you have, as, as you say, Ross, the people who are essential workers who have to go into work and do minimum wage jobs, often without like any hazard pay or any um, kind of reward for, for the work that they're doing, other than uh, the prime minister congrat- like giving their thanks uh, at stand-up. Um, I get yeah, so sick of that thanks. Ah, uh, just like, <laughs> this is the thing, like, you know, at least it's not clapping. At least we're not being asked to do that, like in the UK. But yeah, I just like you say, I would I would hate to be in that position. I think it's the, the worst position to be in. Mm. Um, like hats off to so many of the frontline staff and and um, kind of food retail and stuff, though. For whenever I have interacted with them, just being so positive. But imagine having to put that face on every day, uh, despite yeah. everything that's happening. You know, there's this mantra among uh, managerialists of of resilience in your workers. Um, uh, you know, as opposed to paying them well or actually making their mm. conditions better, um, it doesn't cut it anymore. Like it, it's really one of the many things, um, and, you know, we talked about a whole range of these um, in the People's Epidemic Response Committee last week. Uh, mm. One of the many things that this pandemic has shown is at fault horrifically with our society. Yeah, and I think it's it's that. The, the, I mean, I, I've heard of this before, that the, the pandemic has really stripped any veneer that there was off um, the class inequities in in society, and it's really it's really noticeable. So I live I live in in Mangare, so not far from the airport, and it's the roads are busy, and the roads aren't busy because people are breaking lockdown. The roads are busy because the people who live in this neighbourhood are the people that power this city. They are involved in so many of the essential jobs. They are they are mobile because they are doing all the work that keeps the rest of us sitting at home waiting for our click and collect deliveries. And um, it's, it's tough. It's tough for a lot of people. And it's, it makes me really angry to see the, how hard this neighborhood is working and how many people are, you know, on local Facebook groups and things like looking for support with food insecurity, how many of the local Marai are still like creating food, you know, food parcels and things for Fano, for Fano who are going out and working. And you still have landlords being parasitic scum and you have people who can afford it jetting off to fucking Monica for a weekend. Yeah. The people yeah. working hardest in this pandemic are still the ones that don't have enough and it's obscene Mm. um like oh thanks for keeping us safe um go back to your uh damp you know like fungus filled home um which you're paying 50 percent of your paycheck for uh it's yeah really different experiences and i think the media and, and the way it's portrayed and you know even on on social media and some of our circles because we're so busy interacting with what is being said at the 1 p.m., um, it's really easy to lose sight of that. And yeah, I think yeah. it, it really, I don't know if benefits us is the right term, but is it would be remiss if we weren't constantly revisiting that and asking mm-hmm. why is it this way and what can we do to put pressure to actually change things? Hang on, we just, we just lost you there in that last little bit. I can't remember what I said. <laughs> Lockdown brain strikes again. It yeah. was the same thing that happened to you. It's a weird, like the camera keeps moving, but the sound goes silent for a second. Mm. But finally but, being um, hacked. Th- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a GCS GCSB. Just shoot, it's been so long since I said those letters. GCSB, that's the spy. Yeah, people, you got right? it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some of them. Yeah. Well, yeah. We're being no platformed. 
Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think like that kind of sums up some of what I've found most frustrated about the media discourse is that there are actually really important issues and controversial issues are, that are arising in this pandemic and especially around the inequity of, of um, the burden um, that's being placed on our working class communities, both in terms of the burden to keep um, our services running, the frontline workers are coming from working class communities, but also that's where our outbreaks are and that's where the risk is, is mm -hmm. with, with working class folk. Meanwhile, the, um, you know, political reporters are focusing so much on, um, you know, such a, such a completely different angle on, on this whole pandemic, um, focusing on, you know, whatever stupid thing the leader of the opposition has said at this time, or um, whatever was hot takes are coming out of um, some rich white people who have no, you know, skin in the game in this actual pandemic focusing yeah. entirely on that whereas there's an actual potential controversy happening with the really classist and racist way we've um you know been managing this uh, entire pandemic um and the way that you know our entire social system is set up to put working class uh Mari and pacifica families at the most risk constantly yeah and a lot of the questioning and focus is, is incredibly narrow as well there is no, um, you know, if you're talking about the economics of vaccine delivery, right, or like the commercial relationship between the government uh, and pharmaceutical companies, they're just zoom in on this minutiae with no attempt to tie that back to uh, any of the inequities, um, either globally or domestically, um, any of the wider issues that we're facing, uh, maybe because of that. Uh, it's just, what is the gotcha today? What can we nail you with? Um, where is that that tiny target we can hit you with solely in regards to this part of the health response? And, and as you say, there's, there's so much more out there. But I want to... Oh, sorry, Ross. No, no, carry on. I want to take us um, to the present um, and this move to level three that uh, we're about to experience. I think this is... Still um, higher cases than we when we moved down to level three under the previous outbreak, which was not Delta. Mm. Um, but there is a feeling among uh, the advisors, the health advisors, and the epidemiologists that uh, give that medical or the health public health advice to the government that it is contained. That a lot of those cases are within household bubbles. That there aren't enough. Um, that are unlinked or unknown, uh, that they can safely move to level three, which is still quite restrictive. I want to be like clear about that as well. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, I, I think it, like I think there's a. If you want me to talk about epidemiology kind of stuff, uh, I love talking Abs about that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I like I've noticed there's a lot of hot takes, and you know the media is full of it of, um, of you know people with some epidemiological takes uh, on the government's decision here, but like the context is quite different to previous outbreaks and it's really hard to compare them. So the previous outbreak, when we had a, a, the only other time that we used level four, um, number one is it, it wasn't Delta. So the numbers were gonna be lower when we moved to level three. But the other big difference here is that in our initial lockdown back in 2020, the majority of cases were coming out of um, returnees to the country they were they were surrounded by you know they were they were clusters based on uh people who had traveled and there's a real commonality amongst those uh outbreaks back then those clusters was that they were clustered around rich white people who were able to travel who are living in smaller households and therefore you saw the outbreaks kind of in a household of three four people rather than in a household of multiple generations that makes mm. sense so whereas with our current point where the majority of the current clusters are occurring in South Auckland in um, families that generally contain multiple generations that are, um, you know, very full households, we're going to still see those bigger numbers and it makes sense, but that still feels like it's within the same kind of like realm as when we moved to level three the previous time. Um, and the other times we used level three really successfully for an elimination approach 
Um, we did that at times where we didn't have the same clarity of the containment of an outbreak, but we still successfully eliminated it. Delta is different, but we're now entering level three with that super clear um, understanding of the edges of the clusters, you know? So um, I think the rationale for moving into it is really good, but I don't think that changes the social impacts of um, this level change where we'll see that increased risk and increased burden um, being taken up by uh, middle class, uh, working class folk, not middle class, they get to stay home still, but working class folk moving into those essential uh, worker and laboring roles that will be restarted. They're going to be the ones who are taking on the biggest risks mm -hmm. um, and not, um, and for some of the lowest pay across our yeah. you know, employment yeah. sector. I think we're looking at uh, kind of construction, cleaning, uh, hospitality, uh, probably a, a wider range of retail um, yeah. that will be returning to work under level three. Um, and I think, um, I was going to say, do, do any, any daycare, some daycares might be opening. Daycares. Yeah. Daycares. Yeah. So daycares and schools will start opening for Fano of yeah. essential workers. So, um, my son could technically go back to, to daycare, but we won't, we won't do that because whilst we can keep him at home, then, yeah. then we will not, I mean, much as I'm sure he would love to go back because he's as sick of the side of us as we are of him hanging off our legs. It's, it's, we have a duty of care towards the Kayako at his daycare and just send, you know, sending him because we can doesn't necessarily mean that we should. Yeah. Um, especially when you think about how you cannot social distance preschoolers. Like there's, I think he's, yeah. you, you maybe put them in sort of like little, little Zorbs or something, but apart from <laughs> that, how it could be done, um, you know, but that's, I, yeah, I, I really think about, for me personally, there's very little difference between levels three and four for the vast amount of young people that I work with, uh, for a lot of people in this neighborhood, there will be a difference a and difference. that difference is an increase in risk. Yeah. And I think along with goes with that is, is the way that the press treat like vulnerable neighborhoods and vulnerable mm. populations, like absolute dog shit. It's been infuriating to me seeing the, the consent manufacturing of pity for um, a fucking dame on Tai Drive. Horsey, yeah, horsey dude, horsey dude going to Wanaka and oh, the, the terrible mental health tool. When I think about how, you know, people in my neighborhood are talked about when a whole family goes down with COVID or um, how they are talked about when there's any kind of alert level breaches. Like, uh, I think it was in the last, there was the, the, there, there was that rumor that went around about a funnel who had jumped MIQ and all of this kind of thing. And they were just, they, they were treated like shit. In there the were press. two really bad ones. There was one where someone, it, someone started a rumor and it got picked up that uh, one of the uh, young people in the family had gone to visit their boyfriend in MIQ. Um, that was one of the really bad ones. And the other one was that poor communication from um the Ministry of Health or the DHB or whoever to those high school students who then went to school, um, who Jacinda Ardern got up and like re remonstrated with them essentially at the 1 p.m. presser. It was disgusting. I I could not believe it. Uh, mm. And you certainly haven't seen her get up on stage and, and have a go at this uh, incredibly high social class, you know, uh, Damed? Do you say a woman are damed, or are they knighted as well? I don't. I don't fucking know. Um, Who cares? Yeah, but you haven't seen her get up and have a go at that for having yeah. multiple people come to have a fucking driveway wine with her. Yeah, it's um, it, it's so blatant and it's so. I, I'm really disappointed. Like, I, I shouldn't be disappointed because disappointed is when you have high standards and they're failed to be met. Like, it's <laughs> it, it's it's the way that our media has covered this pandemic has just been horrendous like even even by the low standards that i hold them to they have failed to clear that bar and the, you know the the bar was like a pencil dropped on the floor guys there's been this mixture of um we've had racism we've had classism we've had the the attempt to manufacture um the sort of despair that that we are getting rid of the limit, like we are not going to be able to eliminate this, that we'd we'll may as well that. just, yeah.
tit rip, which I, I swear to God is, is just, why are we using that as a phrase? Um, it's just every, every time you see anything in the press about at a, at a time where it's, you don't actually need to report on what some dipshit thinks about this just because they happen to look like an egg with a face drawn on it. Like just because they used to be in the national party or just because they've got a lot of money or just because they happen to own 24 cafes. What somebody think of our poor small bean cafe owners, you don't actually have to report on every single piece of shit that comes out of their ass. Yeah. And yet here we are as that, that as the, those are the only voices that matter. I think it's really, um, you know, as well as stripping back some of the veneer around um, the class divide, it's also stripping back some of the veneer around the role of our media and what they see as, as their purpose, uh, because they've essentially become a, a PR arm of the hospitality and tourism businesses. And mm. you touched on this. I mean, you've both touched on this, um, but some of the, the hot takes occurring as we move to level three, and it's been dragged across the media for the last two or three days now, um, and especially today, which is oh, we're moving to level three. This means we're giving up elimination uh, mm. and trying to manufacture this idea, which no one has said. Both, both Bloomfield and, uh, and Ardern have been on the stage to say we're not giving up elimination. Like That is not what is happening. And I think I have seen a story saying we're giving up elimination from every single mainstream media outlet, as well as several politicians and several like talking heads. Including it, the leader of the opposition. I, I mean, like, <laughs> of, of course, I mean, of course, she fucking has, but she's yeah. hardly she's she's a she's a drop in the fucking morass now, isn't she? Mm. She could say any old shit. Um, yeah. it's, it's not going to be an original thought. It's going to be something that uh, is generally already out there, but she's going to try and bandwagon uh, to get a bit more support. But I, I just. I know why it's happening. And we saw similar in the UK. We had coming up to a level three announcement. Um, we had a lot of media talking about lockdown fatigue, uh, mm. which we, again, we touched on before the cast. Uh, and that was something that was used very heavily in the UK to manufacture consent for dropping levels when they had really dangerous outbreaks. And mm. it felt similar here it felt like it was being driven by business interests and by media interests and by some political interests um but it had come off the back of um i think a, an epidemiologist and a covid modeler uh using the terms and mm. i think they'd use them in, in, a, in a different way than they were then picked up and used to kind of kibosh uh labor into moving to level three um, but yeah, both, both those, both those narratives have sat really uneasily with me. Mm. Like I, I get a bit uncomfortable as like, cause there's all, there's those two narratives. One is that we're giving up the elimination approach and that, it, that it, we're doing it because it's not working. And the other narrative is that we've moved into level three because of, um, lockdown fatigue, which I, I don't, neither of those are true. Mm -hmm. I don't think. I, I don't I don't think at all. But um, both when you have those narratives and then you have an action and you and they can point to that action, say there's proof of, of our theory, then it just kind of builds kind of support yeah. to it. But what frustrates me is that no one ever talks about outbreak fatigue um, or, you know, like what the fatigue that's actually happening in countries where those outbreaks are oh, you uncontrolled. Know, fucking hospitalization and death. Um, yeah. which are, you know, slightly worse than fatigue. Oh, it's, it's intense. Like, um, you know, as a nurse, I follow a ridiculous amount of nurses on Twitter and on social media who uh, overseas are reporting some of the most horrific stories I've ever come across in any nursing literature or social media to the point, like, I don't know if you know much about Canadian politics, but Alberta is basically the Canadian Florida. Yeah, um, it's the redneck. <laughs> it's it's the redneck place. It's it's historically the most consistently um, conservative, and they decided to take a let's live with it approach. You know, let mm. let's just let COVID go, no restrictions. Um, and they're very conservative politicians have just come out recently and said we were wrong. Um, what we did was actually um, created a tragedy. The nurses in their hospitals. If you want to talk about fatigue 
we're, we're talking about PTSD that's ongoing with mm-hmm. what they're experiencing. And, yeah. you know, their, their ICQ, uh, not ICQ, that's, that's a 90s <laughs> chat. <laughs> their, their ICUs have been like packed for months, overflowing, and they now have policies that nobody in the hospital gets CPR anymore. Not just COVID patients, nobody, because they don't have the capacity. So if you want to talk about lockdown fatigue, yeah. Let's also balance that with looking at what outbreak fatigue actually looks like. I don't, like. you know, I, I'm often like pretty, um, I treat uh, media, media uh, other media with a little bit of contempt um, if, you've, if you've followed me at all. <laughs> um, but it, even so, memories just seem so ridiculously short because you go, if we're talking about, you know, stories of, of health systems collapsing, we go back to New York last year where they had fucking freezer vans, you know, because they ran out of room for the bodies. Like, that, that's something that fucking happened. And, and yeah, it's happened that, across the world. The thing that I find, though, is that, you, you know, there, there's that, um, I want to say disparity of knowledge or disparity of experience. Um, because not everybody works in healthcare and uh, they can have the stories about the, you know, the freezers full of COVID death bodies, but they Mm. actually aren't living it day to day. They're, you know, uh, a lot of the people in these uh, places where outbreaks are happening are actually divorced from it. We separate death so Mm. effectively in our society that they're not actually observing it. And that's why you have at the moment, huge protests outside hospitals in the U S because they actually don't understand what the experience is like of having 15 people die on you every day in some of these hospitals. That's why um, I would have but, hoped that journalists would have, you know, reported. Uh, covered it. Yeah. And it's like today I had a conversation with someone in my clinic. I was trying to explain what asymptomatic meant. I was talking mm. about it in terms of STIs, but I used COVID to try and explain, oh, you've probably heard the term asymptomatic recently in the news because of COVID. And the person yeah. said, ah, I don't really pay attention to COVID. I don't think it's really all that bad. Um, <laughs> and, you know, first of all, in New Zealand, we don't experience the level of death that they are, you know, in America, we're so far, one, uh, one in 500 Americans, US Americans has died from this pandemic, which is a huge percent, uh, like a huge number, if you think about it as a total population. Everybody knows someone there who's died of COVID. Well, it's not the case here. So, but my reply to him, though, because it was a little bit complicated, but I, my sister passed away from COVID last year. And I pointed that out to him. And he, his eyes were suddenly shocked to actually meet someone who's been directly <laughs> impacted by COVID. And I think that is the failure of the media. They haven't told the stories effectively um, to really put across what's happening in our hospitals, in people's lives, you know, and how it's mm-hmm. affecting people in countries where those outbreaks are uncontrolled. Yeah. And yeah. that's somewhat where I'm getting at with this. It has been stripped away as to what their, their role is um, in society. Because rather than reporting um, on that, what, rather than telling these stories of the enormous loss um, that so many people have, have found themselves facing, it's what, what is not even like, to- not even opaque, like totally transparent. Uh, undermining, maybe light undermining, but undermining nonetheless of what the public health response is. 100%. And yeah, the um, what was the story recently that just uh, there, was, there was a coverage of the story, there's currently um, uh, an employment uh, lawyer who's um, taking on defending, I don't know if it's defending because I'm I can't remember the details of who's suing who, but, um, you know, uh, earlier in the pandemic, the New Zealand government, the Ministry of Health put out that vaccine mandate for all Mm. customs workers. And there's a number of custom workers that are taking that to court to kind of like test it. If you read the articles that have come out about that court case recently, there's no detail around what that actual mandate was. And it's expressed and been described as just the vaccine mandate, which creates a sense that we already have a vaccine mandate in this country that's going to affect everybody. And there's no actual explanation of why specifically custom workers were part of this mandate. And all that does is starts to generate the fear of, um, you know, 
of the vaccine mandates of mandatory vaccinations, which some people feel fearful of. We don't have that, but they're creating that fear and uh, not just creating, but feeding it with stories that are inaccurately written. And one has got to wonder why is that happening? Yeah. And often when you'll, you'll go and you know, point it out on Twitter, <laughs> as I, I want to do, um, and you say, hey, this, this headline seems to be saying there's a vaccine mandate when actually there isn't. They say, oh, well, we can't um, condescend to our readers. If you, if you read the entire thing, right down at the bottom of the 500 words, we do have a single sentence about it. Um, it was added afterwards, after we'd released it. And it's not in the print edition, but it is there. So I, are you saying we should treat our audience as like idiots? Is that what you're saying? And you're just like, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when you have multiple media platforms using the same words, front and center, and we know that people don't read all the news, you begin to create an overarching narrative that people pick up on. Yeah, it's, um, and it's anxiety. Anxiety is a hungry beast and it will look for sources to feed itself with. And I find it very, I was going to say naive. It's not naivety, it's, but it's this sort of willful ignorance of, as you said, well, we, we did right at the bottom. We, you know, we wrote this headline about how um, the vaccine has 5G in it and it's going to turn us all into mindless zombies. But we put that that was an opinion piece in three-point in three font. And at the bottom, we said, actually, there is no... Uh, factual part of this so you can't that you have no basis for complaint uh, you know, i don't see what your problem is and it's what it does is it's really stokes this you've got people who have been dealing with this is unprecedented i, I wrote i wrote a bit about this today um this is not normal times this is not like human beings have a great capacity to to manage in extreme circumstances, but normally those extreme circumstances are quite short. You know, there is an earthquake, there is a disaster of some kind, and we are very good at operating at a higher level to deal with that after the fact. Um, but we have been operating at that high level now for coming on for two years. We're existing, like our base state of anxiety as a whole has, has shot up and it doesn't take much for that anxiety to start going down some very interesting little rabbit holes. And if you are sitting as one of the gatekeepers of information and you are willfully feeding that anxiety and you're willfully platforming opinions and people who are actively harmful, like this idea that opinion is valid. Well, sure. That's fine. Mm -hmm. If it's some dickhead talking about some TV show or whatever, but when it's, persuading vulnerable people not to take a vaccine that will mean the difference between life and death not just for them but for their loved ones that's that is criminal like we are getting into like you should be in the hague for this yeah. um man it's getting busy there it's <laughs> appalling it's disgusting yeah. and everyone's just standing by and looking at it and i yeah get in line yeah. behind tony blair a lot <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, there, there are already, I would say there are already governments that that should be facing charges on this. But it's it's become so normalized, it's so normalized everywhere else that these decisions were okay. Like they're, they're the only decisions that could be made. It's already moved on. Now, I don't think we're going to get that closure, um, if I'm being honest about it. But here in New Zealand, we still have the opportunity to ensure and and Thank goodness the Labour government and Ardern have been pretty stalwart on the health response. Uh, you know, all, all the criticism that I have of them aside, they generally have not uh, been too shaken by business and by the media, um, by conspiracy th theorists uh, into making significant changes to the way they're operating. Mm. The downside, though, is they're also not listening to... Um to, you know, uh, Mare public health advisors who from the very beginning have told them that their entire vaccine rollout is rooted yeah. in racism. Um, like they're definitely, you know, the responses, the, the lockdowns have all been appropriate, 
but when you look at that wider rollout of the public health measures yeah well i was going to get into that next because there's been a lot of discussion around this move to level three um a lot of the uh, public health people and, and epidemiologists have been platformed so far have broadly agreed that you know this is still containment this is uh this can still work we've had some people i think michael baker was saying there is more risk here it is harder to fully stamp out if we're moving to level three which is you know it's just a truism you yeah. know we're moving to less restrictions um mm. but that's probably one of the more critical ones i've seen in the mainstream media but what I've seen from a lot of Maori media and Maori public health specialists and people working in that space is that they wanted to stay at level four because of the vaccine rollout, because of mm. uh, the inequitability of it, um, yeah. and because of the risk to their communities and Pacific communities directly. Um, and I'm incredibly partial to, to siding with them on that. I'm not, um, I think I've, I've played out, if you want to see more of like, why I think this, it, it, it's all online at this point. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I disagree with the move to level three at this point. I understand the rationale for it. Um, you know, Mikey's given some, some reasoning for that here tonight, but on the back of listening to Rawari Jensen, Dr. Rawari Jensen last week on the People's Epidemic Response Committee as well, I, I yeah, I can't That's countenance true. that risk. Mm. Yeah. And like that's that's part of the way that this level three um, inequitably affects um, my Pacifica and working class communities. The the reason that um, we've had such a spike in the uptake of vaccines isn't that more people want it; it's that more people are uh, free to get it during the day. They haven't been at work. Whereas with level three, we're going to see a move back um, to work specifically for my Pacific and working class communities who are now no longer going to have that freedom during the day to go and get their vaccines. Um, so unless we actually take some radical uh, approaches to, uh, you know, accommodating that, we're going to continue to see that yeah. disparity between vaccination rates. And I, I don't know about uh, the two of you, but I, I don't really have high expectations of uh service industry employers to mm. who, who pay the minimum wage to be treating their staff well and and carving out time for them to go and get that or providing um you know in-house vaccine it, or etc i i mean like i've done in-house vaccines for um factories before um and it does seem to be a thing that okay. when it's available people people uh, take it up um and i like mm. I, I think when the time comes but that actually means that the government has to have that available um and that's where we're lacking is we we don't have we don't have that yet and that should be yeah. something that's happened a long time ago in this vaccine rollout to ensure that we have equitable coverage yeah i think once again we've seen that that systemic racism and inequity and it's come back to bite us on the arse and in such a large scale so in my in my neighborhood um this was one of the early hotspots, um, De La Salle College, Southern Cross, et cetera, campus, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a st once those locations of interest had been announced, they set up mobile testing stations at um, a football club not far from here. And the queue for people to get tested was round the block. It was hundreds of cars long. Yeah. And when you think about how Again, South Auckland communities have been portrayed in the media. It's been that they are vax, they are anti-vax, they're not involved, they're not signing in, they're not doing X, Y, and Z. It is totally not borne out by the response that is given when they have something to respond with. And it makes me really angry, you know, how quickly we were able to set up like the um the the Tongan focused vaccine center. Again, not that far from here. They had thousands of people through thousands you have um out in west auckland you have the the maori um authorities vaccine station out there and they've been incredibly busy in vaccinating thousands of people and it's we know what works in these situations and yet the government goes well they're just not they're just not taking it up yeah, yeah. it's such a mystery it's not or, a mystery um, oh, the other one which has really fucked me off is oh actually um it's just because maori are younger on average so they didn't have access oh. to the vaccine. Oh. Yeah, you know what else? Yeah. Maori die younger on average too. So, you know, if you, if you knew that was the fucking case, why didn't yeah. you <clears throat> make changes in, in that regard? Um, 
yeah, it was seen... brought up over and over to them. You know, mm-hmm. so, like so many public health experts, Maori health experts were saying that from the ve- before we had the vaccine, yep. they were pointing out that already your planning is going to completely miss out our community. Yeah. And um, you, you mentioned West Auckland before, Ross, uh, but, you know, the Waipareva t- Trust, who is running a lot of that stuff, mm-hmm. um, it was only a, a few weeks ago they were saying, yeah, we're, we're smashing through the vaccines, but uh, something like 80% of the people are, are non-Maori. Mm. You know, mm. like, well, we've seen that these, these Maori health authorities and marae um, or uh, Tongan communities uh, or other Pacific communities are fantastic at delivering these interventions mm. for the people when they're given the resource to do it. Um, and, and they're not only delivering for their people, they're delivering for everyone. Uh, my co-host uh, Philip was saying the other day, again and again, Mariah uh, being shown to be the number one use of decentralized resource that this country has available. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just, it's not even close. And uh, yeah. uh, when Dr. Rawari was on the um, live stream the other day, he said, just give us the authority and give us the resource to do this. We want to do this. Like it helps everyone, yeah. please. Mm. Just, yeah. just it, give us some of it. Even within that, those vaccine rollouts and the, the swabbing stations, there's huge disparity even amongst uh, within pay, um, partly because of that disparity in funding. As a nurse, if I go to one of the DH, uh, not the DHB, but one of the, um, you know, there's some private entities that have been set up to do vaccinations and swabbing. I'll get paid up, you know, $60 an hour thereabouts to go and do vaccinating and swabbing um, at those sites. Whereas as, as empl- uh, you know, I'm employed by uh, a Mari Health Service that works alongside Waipareira Trust at those um, sites. We, we're still on our normal pay if we go and do those those. Yep. Um, hours if we still go do the swabs of the vaccines there. And, that's how it is within all of the Maori health services so that huge disparity is ridiculous and I've seen mm. a whole bunch of the other um, I guess you'd say back-end um, health service work is being done by volunteers in some of these places mm. you know especially mm. in terms of admin and like getting the infrastructure up and running and getting the logistics sorted um, yeah. you know people uh, putting together medical gear um, yeah it's and, and yet, yeah, there, there's that huge disparity in, in resource. And we are, we are lucky that these communities have a, a sense of um, community with the rest of New Zealand that apparently the government and some of our health providers do not. Hmm. And I think it comes back to that. We've said this, right? We, we keep getting, like, there the, the keeps being, oh, the thank you so much for for your sacrifice i don't give a shit like if you want yes more than <laughs> yeah yeah like make remove all these barriers to access pay people to stay home you know i know of um people who work as essential workers who are doing the right thing and if they've been uh, pinged as being a close contact or staying home and and you know because They'll be in a, you know, in a home situation, like everyone is staying home and they will have their jobs threatened. And they are, you know, I know people who are savvy enough to call, call employers on their bluff because that is illegal. But there are a lot of young people, vulnerable people, people who, you know, do not have employment law Twitter on hand who are going to get bullied into going to work when they're not well, are going to feel obligated to go in, are going to look at their spiraling rents and and weigh it up and they'll have been told by some New Zealand Herald article about how the vaccine knocks you out for three days and think that they can't do that with the workload that they have and the lack of sick leave that they have. Yeah. Mm. There's so much has been placed there's so much obligation being placed on individuals and individuals who have very little to give above and beyond what they are already. And there's just there's no safety net. I, I'm just imagining so many employers who will be happy clapping their staff, like, oh, you're doing such a great job, such a great job, up until the point that I need to break, take a break. And, oh, you don't want to let the rest of New Zealand down now, do you? How many mm-hmm. times have you heard that exact set of conversations play out in the workplace mm-hmm. um, yeah. from uh, people leaders, uh, as, as they're referred to? Um, and like, there's, there's no way that's not happening. 
now. I, I don't, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we don't need to give the benefit of the doubt here. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I keep seeing this thing on uh, online, people making this argument of, well, you know, the, the lockdown is tough, but but people dying is is tougher. And it's like, yeah, both of those things can be true at the same time. And I hate this sort of, this real minimization of the very real anguish and pain that people are going through with this lockdown, yeah. the inequities that it's revealing, the hardships that they're, that, that are being just the, the gaps in the, in the system that are just like, have like canyons now and to turn around and say, ah, but it could be so much worse. Yeah. doesn't mean it's not shit now. doesn't mean people aren't suffering now. And you can't invalidate the very real suffering and struggle that is going with this because I think we all know what the stakes are in this. We all know, mm. um, you know, uh, lots of us have, have Fano abroad. Lots of us have got friends abroad. We've seen what happens if, if we get this wrong. The stakes have never been higher. And to suggest that people finding lockdown difficult don't understand what it is that we are up against is not, is not the thing. Yeah. And it's especially, um, rife among uh, Jacinda Ardern defenders, right? Um, mm. As to, I think this and this. Oh, you want everyone to die then? No. Um, we've made it, we've made it uh, a habit uh, on one of 200 to say, look, we agree with the health response. Um, don't have any complaints. Uh, only minor complaints, maybe. Um, what we're talking about is this, this, and this. Uh, and... I, I hate having to uh, front that, as with anything. Like, I don't want to say, yes, I know this, but, um, and unfortunately, that's the, the nature of the discourse at the moment. If you're not giving homage, um, then apparently any critique that follows uh, puts you on the other side of that, that argument. Which is it's, it's also hilarious. It's hilarious how it happens the other way around, where if you defend the health response, <laughs> people automatically assume that you love our current government, that you love our current prime minister, and you love everything they do, and you're just defending them. Which, as an anarchist, I find absolutely <laughs> as an anarchist with a, a health masters and and with public health postgrad, I'm like, those are very different things. <laughs> You know, you can you can fully appreciate and acknowledge the science basis of the health response, and still hate this neoliberal government. Yeah. Um, it's called a hellscape, like the rest of us, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's just it's it, it's this. I'm annoyed that I am having to defend both large pharmaceutical companies hmm. and a neoliberal government that has oh, shown it does not it. give a shit. And um, but. Yeah, but still, yeah. like, yeah, I, it, it's just no that hasn't been allowed to exist. Yeah, yeah, and uh, like I think I think this, like, if only the media would talk about some of the better critiques of you know the major pharmaceutical industry um, like this. For like, for example, if you look at who all the purchasers are of the Pfizer vaccine, it is a hundred percent governments, and yet mm. we have we have. Um, you know, and we've used nonprofit science research to generate the data that these vaccines have been created by. So uh, uh, both on the theory end, you have people not for profit. And on the delivery end, you have governments. And for some reason, they've decided that the best way to produce this is to create mass profits for a multinational uh, entity. Whereas actually, why can't it be that nonprofit model, that collective um, you know, model all the way through. Don't you want There's innovation? No Don't you want innovation? Though? <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess I get yeah, an example of that that really struck me the other day was uh, when Susie Wiles was uh, in, in the news because people had decided that a science communicator was who they were going to go after. And it's funny, as someone who's taught science for a long time and you have this, um, oh, footballers are the one and, and movie stars, are the ones that get all the press. When is it going to be the scientist's turn, for example, and then a scientist becomes famous and you see what happens. You go, no, 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 not like that. But um, her response being, well, here's what I actually do when I'm not doing COVID science communication. I am looking for 
new kinds of antibiotics, which I think we can all agree is an extremely important thing. I would love for you to donate to that research. And there was just something incredibly like existentially depressing about the idea that in order to search for new variations of this drug, which we are running out of and which is kind of vital for society working the way it continues to do so, they have a crowdfunder. Mm. And yeah. I, we raised $30,000 off the crowdfunder because I, I bumped it on Twitter after people were mean to me. And it's <laughs> like, never, never mind the virus, just, just fuck everything. If that's where we are. Yeah, I, I think, at, you know, at least we're not it's quite in the state of stuff. the US, right? Um, where we're crowdfunding, crowdfunding for our medical bills um, to, to the same extent. I mean, it still happens there. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's, it's bleak. It's bleak. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I really hope, um, bringing it back around to just what's happening uh, with the lockdown and, and stuff in general, I really hope it, it works out. I, I really hope it pans out. Um, if there's anyone in the media listening, please, God, talk to your editors they're making you look really, really fucking bad. Right? Like, <laughs> this is another one of the things that I often just have to say up front to, to prove I'm not a, like a, a total asshole. Uh, but we know that there are a bunch of good journalists and reporters. But, you know, we've, mm. we've seen some of the really great stories you've written about this. It is the overarching editorial vibe, uh, for lack of a better word, that is occurring across every single fucking media platform. That is the problem. And, you know, it might, not, it might not be you on the ground. It might not be you who's, you know, like hitting away at your keyboard and doing the fucking groundwork on this. But you have the power to turn around to your bosses and say, look, we can't do this anymore. We are, we are losing out. We are, we are mm. not serving the public. Um, or uh, come and do more independent media with us. <laughs> you know, that, that's always an option as well. Yeah, I guess it's, it's a variation on... Um when I worked with schools and did sort of crisis response and management, there would be the, how is you, you think about what the New Zealand Herald headline is and work back from there. And it's sort of a, a similar thing could be applied to some of the, the coverage that we've seen is in a hundred years, is your, is your opinion piece going to be looked at in horror by me, like the, the media students of that time? Are they going to look, you know, are they going to look in the same way as we look at some of the coverage of the 1918 Spanish Spanish flu? First Herald and, piece um, during uh, lockdown level four, just before lockdown level four was like COVID apocalypse, front page splash <laughs> with queues at the supermarkets. It was fucking disgusting, but perfect example of what you're saying that, for yeah. us. In, 20, in 2020, the ones, yeah. are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. I Day that. one. It was, it was wild. Yeah. The thing that frustrates me around that whole thing is that we have health journalists, we have health reporters. And if you look at who's at the press briefing every day, it's never the health reporters who have some health background. It's solely political reporters. Mm. And if you look at the, you know, the latest, um, uh, what was it? I think it was the Herald article, the stuff articles, all the opinion pieces none of them are being written by anyone with health backgrounds. The mm. ones claiming that we've, you know, dropped the elimination strategy. I don't know. They get Des Gorman in every now and then. Right. <laughs> but it's almost entirely people who have no comprehension of public health approaches yeah. uh, 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 of any of the science stuff who get these loud, um, plat they get the platforms yeah. and get the influence. In it. Nor have even spoken to these people, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, it's, just, it's someone, again, I don't want to do Twitter review, but I think it was um, Justine, actually, who sort of said that like this, this is a, a political situation that we're in, and there needs to be discussion of the political side of it, but that is just one aspect of it, and there's very little balance. And it's also, like say, this incredible um, focus on like Queen Street restaurants or whatever, like... A, a hospital it's not just hospitality across it's it's hospitality which seems to be tied to the places where these journalists go for their flat whites in the morning like i'm not mm. correlation does not necessarily imply causation but you know, think dream bigger guys there's more stories out there hey, i mean and the mojo just, guy getting a like top billing for a couple of weeks is a perfect example of that yeah yeah it's just i i do think as I said, we're going to look back on 
on how this was managed and it's going to be looked back on as something that was good again could have been a lot better and i and i hope that we never see th- these kinds of inequities again i'm not holding my breath but this has not been good enough for the, for too many people but the social response i think is going to be studied for a very long time mm-hmm. because despite all that i want to end well despite all that and despite all of the like the press just seemingly taking part in almost a british style death cult because they do love the death cults over there we've held the line you know auckland has been in level four lockdown for over a month and we've held it and we're going into level three and i think people outside of auckland don't quite realize that auckland has done level three several times before we have eliminated it before we'll do it again and that is in spite of all of these inequities and all of these other things. And it's, you know, trying to be optimistic that we have done it in spite of all this yeah. um, is incredible stuff. I think it's, yeah, really well said, Ross, um, and incredibly worth mentioning as well that the support for the public health response is consistently above 80%, mm. you know, Um and, and yeah, like you said, despite everything, um, incredible and just an incredible community response in that sense. Any final um, epidemiological uh, words you wanted to add, Mikey? <laughs> From um, the person no. who actually knows stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, like it's kind of funny because, like you said, you wanted to end well, and I feel like I want to end um, with tragedy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, had yeah, was, we had our moment. We had the anarchist in you, Mikey. Right, yeah, that's it. it. It's the nihilist. It's the it's the punk rock nihilism. Um, because like like one of the things you said was like that that you hope this is a you know the last time that we see this level of inequity, uh, and you know obviously that's not going to be the last time. But what really gets me is that like actually the biggest looming public health um, risk that we have still present even in the middle of a pandemic is climate change. And the way that we've seen this whole pandemic and public health response roll out is actually just going to be a much smaller example and almost like a premonition of what we're going to be experiencing as climate change destroys human health over the, over the next coming 50 years. Um, And, you know, if I just wish that we actually had a government that would use that same public health lens on climate change and you because climate change is first and foremost it's an environmental issue but its impact on humans comes primarily because of the health impacts that then carry on that economic stuff that everyone else is looking at um you know so and we already know that that's climate change is going to have an inequitable impact on people's health Um, we're going to see you know worse impacts mari pacifica and working class communities um, so to end on a horrible note, <laughs> but an important one, an important, an important one. one that, you know, our, our, our COVID responses are really um, the premonition of how we're going to see um, our public health responses when climate change completely devastates human health. I, but think about thank this. you coming. <laughs> <laughs> think about this, though, just the, the sheer number of holiday homes. Uh, owned by rich Remuera rights that are going to be wiped out um, because they're too close. Uh, That's a tragedy. To, yeah, to the ocean. FC hey, chat. we actually <laughs> hope to have um, a bit of climate change stuff uh, coming up uh, in terms of content from one to hundred in the next couple of months. Uh, we're coming uh, up to some, some pretty big uh, climate change conferences uh, that we'll want be wanting to cover. So yeah, actually a really, a really good note uh, to leave it on as well um there's a lot happening in that space hopefully people do get a fucking clue about it um in the political space i think there's a lot to learn from from what we've gone through over the last couple of years in regards to some of those responses i wish they'd be treating it more um specifically as a, some kind of dry run and 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 actively learning um but my hope now is that, that they will passively learn instead uh, so mm. keep on pushing um share this with people uh get in touch with us on twitter where can they find you russ uh, i am at that bike dad on twitter um i also have uh pod- my own podcast now with uh with my partner called patch, patch, patch. 
<laughs> uh, next edition of that will be coming out in the next few days. We're talking about the Generation Wars. Awesome. Nice. Uh, and it's a really great lesson, everyone. Um, definitely jump on board uh, with Post and Cast as well. Um, really great to have other people creating content in this space. How about you, Mikey? Uh, you, if you want to follow me on Twitter, and that's um, a big question mark, <laughs> uh, I, I would advise against it, but um, I'm at Mikey the Nurse uh, on, on Twitter. And I, I haven't, you know, should. despite this obviously perfect setup for podcasting, I have not started my own podcast, um, <laughs> you know, but maybe in the future, I will talk about my four cats in podcast form. Amazing. Hey, thank you both so much uh, for coming along to chat about this with us tonight. No it's worries. Pleasure. Kakite. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks to our audience as well. Thank you for listening, everyone. Drop us uh, five stars if you, if you want to. <laughs> Uh, Give us a retweet um, and we'll catch you next time. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. It's a lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism Capitalism Oh, you don't hate Mondays, no